We now turn to 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. We'll begin reading at verse 18 and uh, continue down through the second verse of chapter 6. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our text is those uh, last two verses that we read uh, from the very beginning of chapter 6. And uh, we want to to see these verses in close connection with chapter 5. It's uh, one of those cases where it's a rather unfortunate chapter break. And uh, if we just read a chapter and stop, then we can, we can miss that important connection between uh, chapter 5 and chapter 6. Because what we have in And our text this morning is an urgent and practical application of the gospel message that Paul had been describing and and proclaiming there in chapter 5, where Paul, in effect, has said, Here are the riches of God's saving love revealed in Christ. And believe it. Receive it. We implore you. In fact, so ends chapter uh, 5 not only with the proclamation, but with the appeal to receive this message of reconciliation through Christ. But then the pleading continues in chapter 6. And in our text, in effect, the apostle says, don't fail to benefit from such grace of which you've heard. Don't pass it up. Don't take a half-hearted attitude towards it. Uh, Don't respond in a in a a temporal kind of interest in what you have heard. Because if you do, it will all be for nothing as far as you are concerned. Please don't receive this grace of God revealed in Christ for nothing, in vain, to no purpose. This morning we might see as the last of three sermons recently on important subjects. We considered from uh, Psalm 49, the reality of, of death. And the fact that despite that reality, God's people are, are called to live without fear, without fear in the real world in which there indeed is the reality of death and coming judgment. And then we heard from the earlier part of this chapter, uh, to live according to the logic of the gospel that's spelled out there in verses 14 and 15 especially, that we are to live 
as those for whom Christ died and rose again so that we might live as those who have died to sin and live for the one who died for us and rose again. And now this morning, we want to consider this uh, message before us as a kind of follow-up application, which in effect says, don't waste the ministry of grace that has been proclaimed to you. That's actually the one point of this sermon. Don't waste the ministry of grace. In fact, uh, typically a theme is intended to capture the main point of a passage. And there's one point to this passage, but we're going to look at that from three different perspectives uh, from these verses before us. And uh, we want to begin by by considering the great obligation uh, that is upon us because of amazing grace. And that means that we have to reflect again some more on the riches of that grace that is proclaimed to us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Perhaps the most well-known and uh, favorite hymn of many. We're going to sing it, the Lord willing, after the service. Grace. Grace means favor. God's favor. Favor that is undeserved. Sometimes grace is defined as unmerited favor. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we have coming to us. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's not simply that it is unmerited. It's, it's perhaps, it is more accurate to say it is demerited. Because it's not just that we don't deserve grace, but we do deserve just the opposite. And that is judgment and condemnation. Because the reality of our sin, amazing grace to the undeserving and the guilty, grace that is made known, revealed in Christ, who He is as the Son of God who took upon Himself our nature and what He did in our place as the God-man. This is the revelation of the grace and the love of God. So Paul speaks of it in Titus chapter 2 where he says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying worldliness and ungodly uh, lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ is the supreme manifestation of grace. It's a historical manifestation. It's what happened years ago on earth in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But God ensured that that message would come to us that we'd know about it, that we'd hear about it. It's a grace that is proclaimed in the preaching of the gospel. God saved us according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. It's rooted in God's eternal purpose. But has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That is the good news of what he did to which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. That grace rooted in God's eternal purpose. 
that grace that has been manifested historically in the accomplishment of Jesus Christ is made known through preaching the message of the gospel which God ensured has been proclaimed throughout the world and has so come to us. Paul describes his work. He describes his calling as a ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation. It's a big word, but it's an important word. It has to do with peace. It has to do with a restoration of, of harmony where there was enmity and opposition. And this ministry of reconciliation is a ministry, first of all, of peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the solution to what Paul refers to earlier in chapter 5 as the terror of the Lord. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. Well, what is the terror of the Lord? He had just spoken of the fact that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the things that have been done in the body. And if that day is to be viewed without fear and terror, there can be only one answer to that, and that is reconciliation, peace with God through Jesus Christ. Because the fact is that God will not be friendly toward people who appear before him in their sin without a covering, without a mediator. But the ministry of grace proclaims a reconciling God. That God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the ministry or the word of reconciliation. And on that basis, sinners, despite their guilt, can be restored to peace and friendship with God by believing in this Savior, by receiving Him, who Himself is actually described in the book of Ephesians as our peace, because our peace with God is entirely bound up in Him. Now, this is the grace accomplished in Christ, proclaimed in the gospel, but it's grace that is further revealed in a pleading God. Now, that might sound irreverent to describe God as one who pleads, because it might to us suggest some weakness in God. But listen to how Paul describes his role as an ambassador of Christ. And again, the meaning of that word ambassador is important. An ambassador is an official, right? An ambassador is one who has been commissioned and called with a very specific task to speak as a representative of the king, to speak on his behalf, in his name, with his authority, proclaiming his message. Countries in their dealings with one another, they send an official, an ambassador. He's given safe conduct. He's given uh, immunity. He's a representative of the king. What he says comes with the authority of the king. And so Paul describes himself, along with other ministers of the gospel, as occupying that official role of representing God and Christ 
Now it's in that light we need to hear what he says. What kind of an ambassador is he? Is he one who simply makes known the demands of the king? Who simply announces it with authority? Well, he does that. But that's not all. What kind of king does he represent when he comes as described there in verse 20? We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. When we plead with you, we're speaking in God's name. We're speaking on God's behalf. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. We speak as ambassadors pleading with you to be reconciled to God because there have been such abundant, unspeakable, amazing provisions achieved by this great reconciling God through His great Son whom God made sin for us, whom He treated as if He were the worst of sinners, bearing the weight and guilt of a sinful world upon Himself, suffering the consequences, enduring the judgment of God, so that God's justice might be fully satisfied and the way opened wide for sinners, whoever they may be, to come and receive of this grace freely offered. It's like not simply offered. It's as if God, and I speak it reverently, begs sinners to receive of this grace. What kind of, what kind of king is this? Is it a weak king? Is it a king who has something personally to gain? Is it an ambassador that comes from a position of, of danger and inferiority such that if his uh, uh, message is not heard, it might mean warfare in which he would be the loser? No, this God has nothing to gain and nothing to lose. He is a great king. And he pleads not because he needs mercy, but he pleads that sinners would receive mercy for their sake. Because he takes no pleasure in the death of those who die. But rather they should turn to him and live. For the love of God. For the sacrifice of Christ. For the great cost of redemption that he expended. For the desperate need of your soul. Be reconciled to God. In fact, in truth, truly so that you're brought into this relationship of peace and fellowship with the living God. You see, brothers and sisters, that is the revelation of grace that obliges everyone to receive it and believe it for themselves. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Don't waste the ministry of grace. There's an obligation of amazing grace that confronts everyone within the sound 
of the voice of Jesus Christ proclaimed in the gospel. Because that's what you're hearing this morning through this earthen vessel. Christ came and preached peace to you, Paul says to the Ephesians. My sheep hear my voice. But it's that voice, that authoritative, gracious voice, in terms of the truth of the message and the reality of the immediacy of God's engagement with sinners in the preaching of the gospel, bringing a message of peace to a, a people in a desperate, besieged city, facing the judgment of God, facing certain ruin. Ah, oh, but there's a message. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who proclaim peace. Lay down your arms of opposition. Turn away from your rebellion. Recognize the love of God proclaimed and the message of deliverance from eternal death through Jesus Christ. The obligation of may amazing grace. And the pleading continues in our text in God's name, right? Paul makes that clear. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. We pleaded with you to receive this grace, to be reconciled to God. Now we plead with you again in God's name that the revelation of this grace might not be in vain. That's like just the negative side of the positive plea that he had just made. Don't fail to embrace it. Don't ever abandon it. Don't be led away from it. Don't follow anyone who denies it or fails to proclaim it. Never join a church where this message is not proclaimed. Never join a church where the reality of the terror of the Lord is not proclaimed in view of the reality of judgment. Never join a church where the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ is not proclaimed as the only way to escape the wrath of God. Never join a church which proclaims the love of God apart from the propitiation for our sins in a substitute who shed his blood in order to appease the wrath of God on our behalf. Never join a church that doesn't summons, invite, command sinners to repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. It doesn't matter how nice people are. It doesn't matter how friendly the church is. It doesn't matter how nice the music is. It doesn't matter how kindly the pastor may be. Doesn't matter how safe a place might be, how tolerant it might be for everyone and everything. If it doesn't proclaim this message, whatever you see, whatever you might be attracted to, it's a masquerade. It's a masquerade of the evil one who transforms himself into an angel of light. If the gospel is not proclaimed, whatever else might attract anyone, it's not a church of Jesus Christ. Don't, don't go there. So this message, 
for the sheer wonder of its graciousness obliges all to receive it. In Hebrews chapter uh, 2, well, I've already quoted that passage, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We'll look at Hebrews again in the next chapter. But secondly, we move to consider the opportunity of available grace. And again, we've been, in a sense, taking that for granted, but we need to see how this is brought forth in our text. It's striking, isn't it, that Paul speaks to Christians, to, to church members in this way as he does? He's addressing the church of, of Corinth when he says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He's speaking to the church there also when he says, we as God's workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Well, we're taught in such passages that the gospel call to faith must constantly be proclaimed. Not just in terms of evangelistic or missionary activity, but proclaimed in the church. There are a lot of good reasons for that. Christians never tire of it. Christians never go weary of hearing the riches of Jesus Christ proclaimed. And the summons to, to believe and to receive him. Though we may have lived for 40 years receiving and believing this Savior, it's still good news. It's like fresh, clean water to us. And backsliders need to hear it. And unbelievers, they need to hear of this path of return to God that lies open to them in Jesus Christ. And Paul gives a powerful reason. He gives an argument for available grace. In verse 2, he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Now, this is a quotation from the Old Testament. It's a quotation from uh, the prophecy of Isaiah in the 49th chapter. And it's uh, just a, a selection from a number of verses that are important in terms of the context in which we hear this. It's actually a passage about uh, about Christ, the, the suffering sermon, servant. And he, he has addressed in these words. And he also speaks in verse 5 and following. I'm just going to read uh, three uh, and a half verses. They're rather lengthy verses. We read, Now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Those are the words of the Savior. Right? It's a prophetic passage that speaks of Christ. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises. He's despised and rejected of men. To him whom the nation abhors, they cried for his death and crucified him. To the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel. And he has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit desolate heritage, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth, 
To those who are in darkness, show yourself. Words to the Lord Jesus Christ, including the words quoted in our text. A passage that proclaims Christ as the one who will be exalted. Christ as the chosen one. Christ as the one who is a mighty savior for all people. Christ as the one whom God will give as divine salvation to the ends of the earth. In an acceptable time. A one who will be such a savior despite his rejection. Despite his suffering. Because in an acceptable time and in a day of salvation, this great Savior will be made known. Well, when was that? Well, we know from uh, the way it's described, even in Galatians chapter 4, when it says, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself and not imputing their transgressions. You see, the Corinthians were living in that time, foretold there in Isaiah. And God's word to Christ in that passage gives assurance to them because Christ, who is the appointed Savior, who himself was sustained as a true man, trusting in his God and Savior to sustain him, to help him, to hear him, to deliver him even from death and the grave. He did this as our representative. He did this as our covenant head. And when God heard his son and raised him from the death, from the dead, we have the assurance that God hears all those whom he representative. And this acceptable time is the time of salvation for all. Because all grace is available in him who is given as a, uh, for a covenant to the people. As the one in whom God's covenant promises of grace are secured. And this acceptable time, this day of salvation extends till now. Because the ministry of the gospel continues. And the ministry of the gospel today is proof that that salvation is available to all who will have it. Better yet, Christ is available to all who will have him. Because in the proclamation of the gospel, it's not simply certain benefits that are held forth. But in the proclamation of the gospel, Christ himself holds himself forth to be received. By all who come to him. And he pleads through his ministers to so receive him. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now last week, I belabored the point that God did not simply make salvation possible. Right? God achieved salvation. And that's true. And what we say this morning does not qualify that in the least, although it may explain it in view of a difficulty that people might have. Because the fact is that the comfort that God actually achieved salvation 
is only for those who avail themselves of it. It is only for those who believe the offer and the summons of the gospel to turn to this Savior in repentance and faith. To put it another way, before people come to Christ, their salvation is certainly doubtful. Before people come to Christ, their salvation as it concerns themselves is certainly uncertain. In fact, the only thing that is certain is that the ministry of grace will be in vain to them if they don't receive it and believe it. And believing it and receiving it, oh yes, they will know this Savior has accomplished redemption for them. But the only way that you can know that for yourself is by coming to Christ. Don't waste it. In fact, thirdly, the urgency of this present grace is also uh, taught in our text. This uh, present grace is manifested in this ministry of reconciliation. The end of verse 6, we read, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And again, that's a positive declaration of Christ's finished work and his offer to all. It's a glorious proclamation. But you might say that there's a shadow behind it. And the shadow is that this day will not last forever. It's the day of gospel grace. It's the day in which the word is proclaimed. But it's likewise a day that will not last forever. And here's where Hebrews also is uh, important in its teaching and its exhortation to the church, where uh, we read in chapter 3, verse 12 and, and following, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Quotation from from Psalm 95. You see, the point here is that if the message of grace is abused, it may be lost forever. It may be lost suddenly. It might be lost by any of our death if we die unreconciled to God. It will certainly die or come to an end eventually. Today is the day of salvation. And such warnings, brothers and sisters, as this, also, such pleadings express God's love. Paul knew he was doing God's work with this plea. As workers together with him, we also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. John Calvin said, it is not enough to teach if you do not also urge and when I say, well, is this necessary to urge Christians not to receive the grace of God in vain? I mean, after all, we are Calvinists. And uh, we know that uh, that God preserves his people. And yes, indeed he does. And he's doing that through the ministry of the gospel, right? He's doing He's doing that as the riches of God's grace confront us and uh, we're drawn to them. He's been doing that. If you're a Christian and you've been a believer for years, uh, God has been preserving you throughout those years as he constantly holds before you the riches of God's grace in Christ. He does so through the promises. He does so through the warnings, right? Those warnings that say that him who 
things he stand, take heed lest he fall. Don't take your salvation for granted. Yes, God preserves his people. He preserves them through the promises and the pleadings of the gospel, through all the instruction and the assurances and comforts of word and sacrament. But he also uses warnings. There are some times in our life where that's just exactly what we need. Our text isn't about election in that sense. It's about the riches of God's grace and the wonder of it and a call to see it. To call for your children to see it. Why were you born to Christian parents? You could have been born in another country. You could have been born in the darkness of superstition and all the misery of a family uh, life or a, a, a culture that is under the power of the evil one. But from the time most of you were children, you've heard the stories of Jesus' love. And his wonderful works. You've been nurtured in this ministry of reconciliation and peace with God. Don't waste that. Some of you can, can see God's providence at work in your life. Bringing you into the Christian church. Bringing you into, uh, the, under the preaching of the gospel. Bringing people into your life that were very influential for your for your conversion, or for your presence here this morning. Recognize the ministry of grace and the urgency also that comes with it. Not to receive it in vain, but rather to feel the obligation placed upon us to avail ourselves of it, not to put it off, not to waste it, but to receive it and to go on receiving it. Amen.